HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill. With natural foods, they support organic, vegan, paleo, and gluten-free lifestyles. Learn more about their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good morning, Heritage Radio listeners, and welcome to The Line. Today, my guest is Chef Tracy Chang of Pagu in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The restaurant is named in honor of her dog. Pagu means pug in Japanese. The restaurant has an open kitchen and serves dishes inspired by Spanish and Japanese cuisine. She has cooked at Oya. She founded the pop-up Gucci's Midnight Ramen, and she's worked at three-star Michelin restaurant Martin Berasategui in San Sebastian, Spain. She studied at Le Cordon Bleu in Paris and was a teaching fellow at the Harvard Science and Cooking Program in 2012. She's still affiliated with that program. She opened her restaurant in 2017. We're going to cover all this and more today on the line. Tracy, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Eli. So I want to start off with your very early life. Your grandmother moved to Massachusetts and she opened not one but several restaurants. Where was she coming from? And uh, tell me a little bit about the restaurants that she opened. All right. Uh, my grandmother, from my mother's side, uh, had come already in her 60s um, from uh, just outside of Taipei uh, in a small town called uh, Jilong. And she had come over because all of her kids had eventually made their way uh, to the U.S. and to Boston and she said, well, if I'm going to come to the U.S. where I know nobody from, you know, my tiny uh, home and island here, um, I might as well know my whole family. And so uh, as a result, we were super fortunate as kids uh, to grow, around, uh, grow up around all of our cousins um, living just blocks away. And so uh, my childhood was... Um, pretty awesome with a lot of these cousins and aunts and uncles always gathering to uh, celebrate, to eat together every week. Um, and my grandmother, because she was a midwife all her life in um, 
in Taiwan decided when she moved over, well, I can't, you know, really continue that profession, but I also can't really sit around. Um, So she, I guess, uh, decided to open two restaurants. Uh, First, a smaller Chinese restaurant, um, which just by coincidence, I think, uh, was close to my now alma mater, um, Boston College. And then a larger restaurant that was Tokyo restaurant in Cambridge. So a traditional uh, Japanese restaurant. Um, Yeah, she grew up in Taiwan with a Japanese education. So decided to open a Japanese restaurant. And people always ask me, well, you're Taiwanese, you're Taiwanese American, but why would you open, you know, something that's Japanese influenced? Because it's from my childhood. So, so what was the uh, what were both restaurants called, and how long are either of them still around? How long were they open for? Um, you know, I wasn't even born yet for the first restaurant, I believe, um, and don't even remember the name of it. Um, I just hear stories about it because all my uncles would work there and Mm. one of them got held up before and chased the guy down the street. And so my parents are like, okay, if you're going to open a restaurant, if anyone tries to rob you one day, like, do not chase them down the street. (laughs) They could be armed and dangerous. I'm like, okay, you know, life lessons learned. Um, And uh, Tokyo Restaurant in Cambridge is the one that I have super fond memories of. Um, My mom told me very recently when... We, about two years ago, had signed the lease for my current restaurant, Pagu. She said, oh, by the way, fun fact, um, when your grandmother was signing the lease for Tokyo, there were only three um, you know, people from our family present, and that um, you know, was your grandmother, uh, myself, my mother, and, and you, and you were a baby then. And so I thought it was you know, kind of nice that it was all... Uh, I don't know, being kind of reincarnated in a way with my mom and I signing the lease together. That's awesome. So your grandmother as a midwife, you know, anyone can be a very talented cook, a home cook, and anyone Mm. can say, well, it would be fun one day to open up a restaurant. But in the second half of her life, very, very old for someone to open up their first restaurant, she went for it and had not one but two places. Do you have any background on how exactly... How did she come to the specific decision to open up a restaurant beyond just maybe people telling her your food is really good? They're obviously, as you know, mm-hmm. and many of our listeners know, there go, there's so much that goes into the restaurant besides just the recipes. So how did she uh, organize that and get it started? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the, you know, the family bonds are very strong. And even though everyone, in terms of her five kids... We're all doing some kind of, um, you know, grad school and then finishing grad school kind of work. Um, this was, again, perhaps her way. I don't know if it was a strategy of hers. I kind of wish she was around so I could ask her because I try and be strategic about my decisions. Um, and I don't know if it was, say, her strategy or her um, you know, just kind of like, Oh, let me, let me like, you know, trick the kids into all like bring the band back together. So they all stay here after grad school and Uh all work together. Um, whatever it was, but that's what ended up happening. And our family, um, you know, where our ancestors are from in China, it's interesting. They always say that those folks are quite entrepreneurial. Um, they're from this region called Winzo, 
and and there, you know anywhere you go in the world, you bump into people from Winzhou, and this is like mainland China. So um, they're saying that oh, because they're that we are Winzhou people, um, you know, one we stick together with all kinds of like Winzhou people stick together, um, but two, it's very familial. So anytime um, you know you do. Uh, create some kind of entrepreneurial opportunity that it is uh, banded together with the family. And I used to think, oh, well, wouldn't wouldn't all kind of entrepreneurs function that way? Isn't that how they all get started? But I'm learning that, that it's not, um, especially in this environment and in the neighborhood and community that I'm involved with now. It's they're like, oh, a family, you know, like a family business or a family like of five kids, um, you know, coming together and, you know, with their resources, both financially as well as like the sweat equity that everyone's putting into it. Like that's, you know, that's pretty rare and, and special. So, so you have an actual, you know, there's, there's origin stories for people that end up in the, in the cooking industry and some, they go and do whatever they do and then they fall backwards into it. And other people have this like cooking at grandma's knee story, but you have a really, intense cooking pedigree background because your family has been working and involved in restaurants for a very long time. I'm curious, what's your very earliest memory of being in Tokyo restaurant? Uh, my earliest memories, I'm in Tokyo restaurant. Um, I'm scooping green tea ice cream. I'm uh, making Shirley Temples on the bar with Tony, our bartender. That's when I first learned, like, where's Guatemala? What's Spanish? And he would teach me, um, you know, and I was learning in school at the time as well. Um, And I would learn, you know, sit in front of the sushi chefs, just mesmerized by, you know, how they're moving, what they're putting together, and how that ends up, you know, on my plate or someone else's plate, and then you know, in my belly. Um, and I loved every part of it, you know, the, yeah, the bar component, um, sitting back in the day, back in the day, we used to, uh, have a cashier and, um, you know, you would either pay at your table or a lot of people would bring their check up to the cashier by the door. And so when you're sitting in that cashier chair, you're the first person and the last person, um, that the guests are interacting with. So that was a lot of fun for me too, seeing just all the different aspects of, you know, front of the house, back of the house, um, guest interaction and being like, why is there a giant, you know, like grandma, why is there this giant, like white suitcase thing that this guy is rolling in? It's like funny shaped. And she's like, that's a cello (laughs) and that's yo-yo ma, um, you know, like don't point or, you know, like just, um, there was another very famous guest of your grandmother's restaurant, right? Someone who lived around the corner who was involved in the food world. Who was that? Uh, she's very tall and has a very (laughs) unique voice. Um, we all know her formally as Julia Child. Um, and she was a neighbor and a longtime regular of my grandmother's. Um, and at that time, Japanese food um, was not as uh, abundant as it is now. And my grandmother had um, sourced a lot of things from Japan, including the wares and um, the chefs. <laughs> um, and so Julia was fascinated by um, you know a lot of those uh, 
kind of service wares that she was using. And my grandmother just liked to kind of give things away. And, um, you know, they had, they had a really nice relationship. And I used to it used to be like, wait, it, it took me a while as a kid to kind of put that together as, wait, that's the person that I've seen on, like, Channel 2, <laughs> right? Like, I grew up without cable, and I was like, oh, wait, that's that really tall I've lady with the funny before, voice. Yeah. I'm like, oh, right, same lady that comes in and likes to order, okay, these items. And, um, and I later found out that we have the same birthday. Oh, So, fun awesome. fact. Yeah. Good connection there. Uh I want to know about your parents. Are they or were they involved in the industry? Uh, what did what what did their involvement look like with the restaurant when you were a kid? Mm-hmm. Um, and did you ever um, like formally work at the restaurant, or were you just more of like, oh my my granddaughter, you know, hangs out and works the counter? Did you ever actually uh, work the line or you know mm-hmm. take shifts at your grandmother's restaurant? Uh, I was what you would call an unpaid uh, student <laughs> intern of life, probably. I was um, the oldest I ever was in that restaurant was probably 10 or 11 uh, when she retired. Gotcha. Um, so legally, <laughs> I did not work in the restaurant. Um, but they put you to work. Yeah. <laughs> we were all hardworking and, uh, you know, it's tough to sit still. Um, my uh, my father was not involved in the day-to-day of the restaurant. Um, he enjoyed eating there. And my mother and all of her siblings were involved um, in very different things. So uh, my mom herself waited tables. She managed. She, you know, did whatever was needed. Um, I don't think she really cooked in the restaurant, but my uncles did. Um, they bust tables, they cooked, they learned all those secret recipes that I'm still striving for now to nail down. And, um, and my aunts did, you know, the bookkeeping, the cashier, they did, they waited tables, they managed the floor. Um, yeah, it was a family business. I think that's how family businesses run. That's, that's my reference point. (laughs) So you stuck around in Boston. You went to Boston College, as as mm-hmm. you said earlier, and you got a degree in finance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious, first, uh, why did you choose to stay in Boston? Mm-hmm. And uh, you went when you went and got your finance degree, were you thinking about potentially continuing in a food career, or or did is, is the, has that become something that's helped you out and you didn't really anticipate that, that it would in fact, uh, mm-hmm. be, be helpful to you? Yeah. Great questions. Um, so did I, you know, it, it all stems from like, did I always have this like grand plan in mind that I was going to open a restaurant? Um, again, I was enamored with everything that we did at Tokyo restaurant, including, everything that happened outside of it, which was getting together with my family at grandma's house or at our home on Sundays to cook together. And I realized that was what I continued to do um, in college. And I went to school nearby because as kind of a deal with my mom, um, you know, she really wanted to have, I'm the youngest of three kids. I have two older brothers that are a year and a half and three years older than I am. One of them went out of state. One of them was in state, but two and a half hours away. So she wanted, you know, to have her youngest and her only girl nearby, reasonably so. Um, And as a deal with her, I stayed in state because I kind of challenged her to get a puppy. (laughs) 
<laughs> which she followed through on. Um, I knew how hard it was to find a black pug puppy because we had had two before. And at that time, we um, we still had one. I said, you know, I just literally threw it out there as a joke. And and I said, well, you know, I guess what would keep me here, you know, instead of New York or California would, you know, would be a, another, you know, another puppy because Yoda, you know, needs a buddy at home. And, um, you know, and, and I'd love to, to take care of a, a puppy. Why not? And then she found one. <laughs> she found one from Nebraska. So Phoebe was, it was kind of this joke that Phoebe was Yoda's like mail order bride from <laughs> Nebraska. So anyway, so the puppy. So was, you, you blackmailed your mom and then she bribed you to stay in Boston, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> yes, that's how family deals go down in my family. <laughs> it's the family business. That's yeah. how it works, right? It's a little give and take. Mm-hmm. So you stay, so you stay in Boston mm-hmm. and uh, while you're, while you're in school, uh, are you doing anything related to food at all or are you kind of really focused on school and, and mm-hmm. then afterwards you got sort of more in the mix? Um, so my roommate and I, one of my roommates and I, uh, sophomore year co-founded or maybe freshman year co-founded a column in the school newspaper, um, that was like, a uh, two recipes a week. Um, and she worked for the paper. I just kind of tagged along and was like, yeah, I spend all my time cooking for my roommates, for friends, throwing dinner parties. And again, it's this like childhood memory that I'm just realizing that, well, I find all of my free time to spend my time doing this because I just enjoy it. So it's cooking with friends, cooking with family. Like any chance I get, I go home and cook with my family, spend time with my dog and my parents and bring my friends uh, from college home um, to do that as well. We're making dumplings. We're celebrating Chinese New Year. Um, And I realized, I'm like, wait, this is all for a reason, right? Like, yeah, I'm pre-med right now, like first semester of college, but everyone's pre-med. And my friend's like, oh yeah, everyone starts out pre-med. And you know what? Like 95% like drop out of pre-med. And um, I remembered back, I uh, during college, I went home and I found this fifth grade op- autobiography that I'd written with um, a nonfiction and a fiction section. Kind of ridiculous for a fifth grader to write. But that was the same year that my grandmother retired. Uh, and so I remember, you know, being a little bit, um, you know, upset that she retired and sold the restaurant to someone you know who worked there. No one else wanted to take it over. Everyone said, oh, that's really hard work. We're going to go you know, finally we can move on from this family business. <laughs> We're all free. Um, and I found this autobiography and it said, Hey, I'm one day going to take over my grandmother's restaurant. My cousin Ting will be by my side, like holding my hand and we're going to do it together. And we're going to do it as a family with the cousins, etc." Um, so I found that and, you know, it was, it was touching. And during that time in college, I was figuring out, you know, what am I going to do with my life? And so is everyone and everyone gets stressed out by it. But I realized that one, I became jaded with like the, the pre-med and just kind of like the, the path towards continuing medicine, um, through some like, uh, jobs and internships I had had and, and thought, well, am I really going to, um, you know, create like actionable change in my lifetime in the medical world. Um, if I want to go be 
a doctor, I want to be a surgeon. I'm very, like, black and white. Like, ever since I was a kid, I'm like, if I want to be a doctor, I'm going to be a surgeon. If I'm going to be a surgeon, I'm going to be a heart surgeon. And I thought of it, and I was like, well, but I don't get to decide who receives medical care. And I had worked in an environment where I was the first and the last point of contact for uh, patients coming in. And, you know, I was scolded once at work for allowing someone to be seen by the doctor that did not have insurance. And it really made me question, like, this is a small practice, like, in the suburbs of Mass. Like, if this is, you know, like a quiet liberal community that we live in and, and I can't even help someone out in that way, how can I be this doctor one day at MGH and really affect, you know, how people receive medical care? So that, you know kind of pulled me away from medicine and um, it made me realize that I wanted to be in an industry where you know I wasn't limited in that way limited by the system that I could you know bend and flex the rules as I saw fit in terms of taking care of people like the basic necessities of healthcare, of food water shelter Um, and I saw you know the culinary pathway as the solution because I realized, you know, I still love to cook. And what is it about that? You know, why, why not pursue this? Even though everyone in the family is like, Oh, like you want to relive the hardships that we've worked so hard to overcome. Um, and I, you know, at the time was like, oh, shoot, there's this thing called cable television because we grew up without cable. And I was like, oh, there's, you know, all these chefs cooking on TV. That was the time that, like, Cooking Channel had started. Um, Bourdain's, like, No Reservations had started picking up. And I was like, you know, there's this whole other side to being a chef or being in the culinary world that is not just limited to, like, working in a kitchen in a restaurant every day. Um, And I saw it as, you know, kind of my pathway towards applying you know all these things I was interested in like nourishment like biology health fitness um and you know and business which I ended up studying because it was for me very practical and something you know always having mom in the ear and dad in the ear and saying like well I want to make my family proud I want to make my parents and you know the legacy of my grandmother and everyone um proud but at the same time I have to do something that works for me in terms of like what am I motivated by what am I good at and like what actual change can I actually create um and then there was no question after I stepped foot into a kitchen that this was what I was passionate about this was what I cared about because 15 hours later um after you know working the grind it was like shoot I still want to go home and I still want to cook and I did we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to talk more about when you finally got into the kitchen. Stay with us here on Heritage Radio Network. Red Mill is a proud sponsor of Heritage Radio Network and a big supporter of organic farmers. 
Ray and Tom Williams are two farmers who have worked with Bob for years and co-own an organic farm in eastern Oregon and Washington. Ray shares what their relationship with Bob's Red Mill means to them. We thought that for over the long term, we thought it would make sense, better sense for the soil. Also, we thought that uh, it was something that would improve the quality of the food uh, supply. We're lucky in that we're working with Bob's Red Mill. We're part of a uh, regional food network. Uh, With Bob is a fundamental uh, relationship and cornerstone to that. We also work with other best-of-class people in the Northwest, and we're thankful for the long-term relationship that's brought uh, good things to the soil and good things to our long-term farm economic plans. We appreciate his attitude toward absolutely high standard for the benefit of his customers. We take pride in meeting those standards. Learn more about Bob's Red Mill and their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Welcome back to The Line. My guest today is Chef Tracy Chang of Pagu in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, She just recently opened up her restaurant after spending time at several spots, both in Boston and in Spain. Uh, I want to ask you first, how did you end up at Oya? You didn't really interview for a cooking position, so... How did that transpire that you started working there? Um, oh, yeah, I was about one month old at the time. My friend happened to live around the corner, um, and his father lived around the corner as well and in the same building as the owners. Um, and they said, hey, have you checked out this new Japanese-ish sushi place? Like, you would really enjoy it. Um, and and oh, yeah, I wasn't busy at the time, so I went there with my mom um, checked it out. I was like, oh, this like reminds me of my grandmother's restaurant. Like, what is it about this place? And I started talking to the chefs and they knew my grandmother. And, um, I was like, oh, okay. Like maybe that is a bit of what reminds me of. Is that um, Tim and Nancy that you're talking about? Or was there another chef that was like the CDC? That oh, was- so there were three sushi chefs at the time. Okay. Um, and then two, uh, like Sioux line folks like in the kitchen. Um, but the three Japanese sushi chefs all knew my grandmother. Awesome. Um, and they said, Oh, we used to go to Tokyo restaurant all the time. So we kind of had this like moment, um, with the chefs. And then a couple months down the road, I was, um, thinking about, you know, getting my first restaurant, you know, like real restaurant experience. And I thought, well, you know, this place like really made an impression on me. Um, you know, the food, the service, but also like these people, like they had a connection with my grandmother and I think I could learn a lot from them, but I have no idea how to work in a kitchen or how to convince people that I'm at all, you know, capable besides I'm just, you know, curious and eager, but how do you show that? And the sushi chefs aren't interviewing me, you know, Tim and Nancy or, you know, other folks that, um, worked in the front were, were interviewing. So they were hiring for a hostess position. Um, I walked in and I said, you know, I've been a doctor's office receptionist. I know how to, uh, manage those schedules and times. I think that's similar to restaurant times. I, again, have no idea. I said, oh, and also like, could I spend some time in the kitchen? Here's, you know, a portfolio of 23 recipes I've put together and a little taste of something, you know, dessert that I brought you. It's like a, I don't remember the details, but it was, uh, a matcha like tiramisu kind of dessert um 
I was lucky that I had friends who worked down the street in advertising that said, oh, you should, you know, like you should bring something for them to taste or oh, you should like trace like you're a great cook. Like, here's all the stuff that you've made for me. Like, let's just take some photos of it. Let's put it together in like a little book. I was like, is that what people do? Like, I don't know. How to... I have this like finance resume. I like went to Citibank on a bus to New York last week. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know. I like, definitely I feel like that's not a typical host position <laughs> interview. You're like, here's my resume. I'm extremely overqualified to be a host. Also, here's my photo portfolio of my recipes and I brought you a sample as well of a dessert that you can have. Um, so let me guess, you got a job there. I got my foot in the door <laughs> cooking. I never hosted a day. I offered to, I said, do I offer to like scrub toilets? Like I can do all these things. I actually like doing these things, but I don't want to sound like too eager or I don't. Who is this young woman and what is she? (laughs) Who is this crazy lady? So, yeah. So they let me start staging in the kitchen. Um, It, you know, went from four hours a week to eight hours a week to, you know, we're now down, um, you know, a line cook and you have to run the station. Let's see if you can do it. And then I did that for a month and they're like, shoot, like you want this job? I was like. Well, I guess I've been, you know, doing it and I love it. And I'll, you know, come in extra early and learn all this, you know, how to break down tuna with the guys and just um, that kind of eagerness. Was there a moment for you in the kitchen when it, it clicked in or was it even before you got that line position? Like when you were staging and prepping, did you think to yourself, Oh, I'm locked in. I automatically, I know this is what I want to do. Or was it one night during service? Like when is that moment come to you that this is most definitely the path and not, I'm okay. I'm maybe going to go back and do the medical thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say it was the energy to actually go home after, you know, spending so much time um, day to day, week to week in the kitchen, going home or, uh, you know, going to my parents' home and wanting to cook, but like wanting to cook a feast and being like, oh, this is what I just tried out. I want to try this. I want to put my twist on it. Like I had that energy and that energy carried me throughout like all you know, all the other endeavors thereafter when I was cooking in Paris, when I was cooking in Spain. And because I had that, you know, I guess there wasn't really this like one light bulb moment where I was like, I'm like going to be a chef owner one day. Like, of course, it was like, I want to learn as much as I can from Tim and Nancy here. Oh yeah. From the chefs, you know, in Paris at Cordon Bleu from Martine. Um, but I realized it was like, I have a lot of energy (laughs) and they all thought I was crazy. They're like, you go home and cook after this. Like we, like it's 1230. Like we go home and we sleep after this. Right. (laughs) And I remember reading those articles about, cause I was so curious, like how other chefs like made it or what their path was, what they were good at or like what they had in their fridge. Right. And there are these articles at that time that would say, Oh, take a sneak peek into like this chef's kitchen or this chef's home. And They'd be like, oh, we have like a bottle of uh, champagne, a Coca-Cola, and maybe like a block of cheese or something, right? Their fridges were always empty. Yeah. And that was so bizarre. I was like, am I not a chef? Because I like organize my 
day so that I can get up early enough, go to the market, have stuff in my fridge so that when I get out at 12.30, 1 a.m., I can go home and I can continue to, like, test recipes or cook or whatever it is that crazy lady is doing, you know, in her kitchen at that hour. I'm and impressed. I mean, <laughs> I don't know where you found that energy, but it's uh, it's amazing that you did. And so how did that sort of energy, that drive, that enthusiasm, how did it propel you to Spain? How did it get you to be with Martin? Mm-hmm. And you had a unique relationship with him. Can you speak a little mm-hmm. bit about uh, how you spent your time with Martin? Mm-hmm. So while I was at Oya um, and... You know, when I realized that there were all these other things that I wanted to learn, um, I started learning more about international chefs and international programs. Again, at this time, I have no formal culinary training. Everything is learned from these sushi chefs um, and, you know, Tim and Nancy and the other cooks that were there. And so I said, well, I've never gone to school before. And again, I have my parents in my ear they're saying you know we believe in like higher education so you know your brothers and your cousins everyone else is entertaining you know master's programs etc but like what are what what are you going to do with your life (laughs) um and i and i said okay well i've never been to culinary school and if i'm going to go i'm gonna also i you know learn another language at the same time so that took me to paris um for two intensive months and again i loved like every moment of like a nine hour day with french chefs like kind of breathing down your neck being like why isn't this perfect hurry up you know like dépêchez-vous dépêchez-vous like it was it was great and that later took me to spain because i had a very um interesting way of first meeting Martin's food and his brand. So I'd always had this dream of studying in Spain um, and and going to San Sebastian, which was this like seafood mecca that I'd heard of. Um, and one summer I was in Shanghai and I saw that there was this Spanish Basque restaurant. I was like, mm, what the heck is Basque? And that's when I first learned of Martin because he had opened a restaurant there. Um, and it was called Restaurante Martin. I'm like, oh, okay. So I go eat at Restaurante Martin, and I'm like, shoot, this, this is really, you know, really interesting. It's delicious, and it's beautiful. And shoot, this guy is based in San Sebastian, Spain. San Sebastian is in Basque country. All right, like, totally need a geography lesson. Like, I know Spanish, but, like, what is this Basque thing? Um, and so I started looking up programs. Uh, at that time, my friend had told me about the ESEC scholarship, um, which I applied to like incorrectly, sent my application like 24 hours before the due date because she had just told me I sent it to Spain instead of New York. So I did not get that scholarship. And then I Googled more and more and found this other scholarship to cook with Martine. I'm like, what are the odds, right? So I send in, and that was like a two-week deadline. So I like lock myself in my apartment, film a video, write, uh, you know, cover letter, send my resume in, and somehow got that. I wonder if that video is still online. Should probably take it down. <laughs> try, try to dig that up later today. <laughs> um, so anyway, so that got me this like super unique opportunity. And when I arrived in Spain, no one knew like who I was, what the scholarship, like the details of the scholarship. Um, and, and Martine, you know, like 
kind of knew that I was coming. And, um, and so I realized that there was, that was a good thing. You know, at first I'm like, wait, no one really knows the details of the scholarship. Okay. It's like funded by this company, um, that I'm going to, you know, do some marketing of their like vacuum sealing machines, their potato peelers, et cetera. It's called Semic. Um, and so, you know, the deal was that I helped that company and also spend time, uh, working with Martine, which was really interesting because having like this finance marketing background and having lived with my cousin, who's, um, a film director student at, uh, Emerson, I learned like all these tricks about like video splicing and editing on like Final Cut Pro. So like, I'm totally going to use these skills that I have. (laughs) And, uh, and so I got to work like very closely with Martine because I just kept asking him, I was like, Hey Martine, like you have this TV show. Like, I know I'm here supposed to, uh, I'm supposed to like stage in the kitchen and, you know, I've gone through the different rotations of, you know, garmanger, of fish, of pastry, meat, etc. Um, and I'm a quick learner and I have to be blogging about, you know, my experiences this whole time. You're going to go Google my blog, aren't you? Mm-hmm. And so then, uh, <laughs> then I'm like, well, Martine, like I, you know, like photography. Can I work with your photographers? I have done videography before. Can I work with your TV show? Um, like Martine, I studied, like, did you know I studied finance and marketing? Like, let me travel with you and like show you what Instagram and Twitter are and do your PR and social because at that time it had just started. And again, think about like Das Country being I don't know, five, 10 years behind in terms of technology um, at that time. Like, not everyone had smartphones. Um, so, it was an exciting time to be with Martine traveling, you know, working on these presentations and just um, having every opportunity. He never really said no. It was great. So, let's talk about how those, the flavors of the Basque country have come to influence you, your restaurant. Uh, I would love to hear how you describe it, but it has flavors from, uh, your childhood as well as flavors that you've come across over your years of, of cooking. Uh, how do you describe your restaurant and, uh, how do you organize the menu? Yeah. Um, I describe the restaurant as not just a restaurant. Uh, it's a cafe, it's a bar, it's a restaurant, it's a meeting place. Um, but ultimately it is, a living room. It is a home. Um, and a lot of people think, oh, Spanish, Japanese. Okay. I like that concept. I'm like, this isn't really a concept. It's concept is not to bring you small plates with, you know, uh, Spanish and Japanese fusion. It's more about, um, you know, how can we create a space in a neighborhood that this community feels comfortable coming at any time during the day, um, breakfast, lunch, or dinner, feel comfortable coming, okay, sitting for three hours, having a meal on the, you know, chef's counter, um, or coming for, you know, a bite and a snack or a coffee and a snack, but really it's okay. So we can nourish and take care of people. And so that we can, um, you know, so that if you come in, like you also don't walk out just like with the group that you came with, but like I want to be able to introduce people in the dining room and not only to the flavors of Spain and the flavors of um, Japan and the techniques that I've, you know, um, learned over the years, but also to the people in the community, um, that the wonderful people that have helped me um, to create this, this place called Pagu. So, 
your restaurant has a, sort of a non-traditional layout, correct? So the the kitchen is right in the center, and there's a, a chef counter that surrounds it. But can you tell me a little bit about uh, just the interior setup that does kind of foster that type of mm-hmm. discussion, interaction? And I'm also curious about the wood technique that's employed in the restaurant. Uh, that's a, a traditional Japanese wood technique that you've employed. I would love to hear a little bit about that as well. Yeah, so we spent quite some time thinking about how to, you know, have this space feel comfortable if we want to, um, you know, have people feel comfortable. So um, the wood technique is a traditional technique from Japan that requires um, uh, burning and torching the wood. So um, it's either lightly torched, like when you walk into the kind of entryway in the vestibule before entering, it's um, very lightly torched. And then when you walk in, they're like darker torch pieces. Um, and it's all natural. Uh, there's no kind of um, like varnish or um, like uh, tinted finish on it. Um, and it's called shosugiban. And this way is also... Uh, preserving the wood. So people think, okay, you're torching wood, you're destroying it, you're burning it, it's crumbling, um, but it's actually strengthening it um, because it's protecting it from warping, it's protecting it from bugs and moisture, um, etc. So I think that brings a very um, homey feel, and it's something that I noticed with the architecture when I traveled around Japan. Um, And the space is laid out so that... um, you know, besides the bar and the chef's counter, um, everything uh, can be like furniture in a living room. It can be rearranged. So we've had a lot of fun throwing uh, all different kinds of parties, right? Like tapas parties or wine tastings, or um, we've had kind of like large event buyouts where we can rearrange all the furniture in the room. It can be stadium seating for a sherry tasting that we did. It can be, um, you know, an entire dance floor and we throw, you know, the other tables out onto the patio and, you know, there's this like spillover from inside to outside, but the spaces do not feel, um, you know, binary. They feel like one. Um, so, you know, the modular design was something that I really emphasized and people joke like, okay, as long as it's on, it's on wheels, like Tracy will like it and, you know, she'll, she'll, uh, she'll approve. Um, but that same thinking goes into why we chose our suite. So there's the Heston suite that's sitting in the middle. That's the hearth. Um, that's, you know, the center of the dining room. And I also noticed in Japanese and Basque culture that when they design their homes, um, traditionally, there's this hearth in the middle of the home. So similarly, we have that hearth, we have the Heston suite in the middle, and the Heston suite is also a modular design. So like Lego pieces, unlike any other suites where you decide, hey, I want the plancha here today. Well, you know, a year down the road, hey, do I want to change that to a six burner or do I want to change that to a flat top, um, uh, French top? Yeah, you can. Do I want to change the oven into refrigeration? You can. Um, so, you know, it's a company that I'm really excited to work with because they believe in innovation, cleanliness. They believe in modular design and having that flexibility. Um, so it's great. That's kind of like the ethos of the design of the space. A lot of modularity to um, accommodate and tailor experiences. I know that you said earlier that you, uh, you know, you do not consider it a, a fusion restaurant. There are flavors that are coming from many different places on your menu. There's jamon, there's uh, squid ink bao, there's mazamen, there's Taiwanese sausage on the menu. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Can you speak a little bit about how you decide what ends up on the menu? Uh, is it really just things that you're really passionate about that day, that month. Um, and I would also love for you to talk a little bit about specifically about the Mazamin that you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also for those listening that, that are not familiar with what, what Mazamin is, can you explain it a little bit? Yeah. So it's very rare that we have this moment of, oh, you know, this came in and this is what we'd like to do with it today. Um, a lot of things and kind of probably as you've gathered from um, you know, sitting and speaking with me, um, a lot of things are premeditated, or I like to think and let things marinate for quite some time. And in terms of, you know, menu and recipe development, um, everything, and as you, also, you probably also gathered from na- uh, now, is that everything has a story and everything has a reason. But because for me, um, you know, one of the strongest points for me, and one, opening the restaurant, but two, just as an ingredient to cook with is nostalgia. And, you know, if if the restaurant was there to be a concept, then it would make sense, I think, to, oh, today this is, you know, what comes in. Okay, what do we do with it that fits this concept? But for me to have, you know, a home where, um, you know, we're creating food that's, that's, you know, got a story and, you know, a reason for being there to nourish you know, our friends and family in the neighborhood, for me, it's very much like, oh, well, I grew up cooking this childhood fried rice. It was the first thing I ever learned how to cook. Oh, these are the, you know, croquetas that I made with Martine. Like, there's a very specific point in time where I have made that dish with someone before. And I think as the restaurant evolves, that's also, like, the wonderful part is, like, I'm having these moments with my chefs now where I'm like, oh, that's awesome. We're collaborating on this. And, you know, things are going, new items are going on the menu that now have, like, this new thread and new story that gets woven into the fabric. Um, so to your question about Mazeman, um, like, why is it on the menu, how it's different from ramen? Um, so Mazeman, literally, maze means to stir and men means noodles. So it's stirred noodles, I think, um, you know, the most kind of uh, familiar reference point for folks would be similar to, you know, akin to like pasta, right? It's, it's saucy versus like ramen is very brothy. Um, so we have several mazimen on the menu, um, one of which just, uh, you know, went out of season, the uni miso mazimen that people get quite excited about. Um, one of the newer ones being the Thai basil uh, pesto mazimen that I'm really excited about right now. Um, but it's nice because it's, for me, like this very homey feeling. Like you want something warm, something saucy, um, and just, you know, made with love. But keeping it simple. So for me, that's kind of the intersection of Spanish and Japanese cuisine. You know, it's a celebration of the ingredients in season. It's keeping things um, simple and respecting the tradition. And do we put our own twist on it? You know, is it Thai basil instead of, you know, um, other kinds of basil that you might find that are less, you know, like licorice and easy? Yeah, it's different. Is it cashew and no cheese? Yeah, because it has similar tasting notes. Um, but we're also being very vigilant and cognizant of the folks in our community. Um, and there's actually a lot of folks that come in that are, say, gluten-free. So we have gluten-free noodles. There are a lot of folks that come in that are dairy-free. 
So that was very intentional for me to create a pesto that was um, dairy-free. I'm a young new restaurant owner. So are you. We, we are both uh, sort of at the beginning stages of our uh, true like leadership ownership careers. Um, and I struggle with this balance of letting staff in and being transparent, but also making it look like I really have the reins and I have everything figured out, which I most definitely do not. Um, so my question for you is, how does your uh, confidence factor into running your restaurant? Are you, uh, you know, what's your style? What's your leadership style? Do you present a, a sort of front? Are you transparent about things that happen? How much are you letting your staff in and seeing that sort of secret sauce that goes on when you're a leader of a restaurant and a chef? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I try and lead by example. And I think leading by example, you know, is being, um, you know, hardworking, is being open and transparent, is being um, very humble. And these are all you know, just like core values, but also just the values that my parents have raised me with to just be a good human. And I always, you know, I always say that. And even if I'm, you know, in a situation where I have to, um, you know, like say correct or reprimand, I don't really, you know, I, I've been in situations in my own learning experience where they've been very intense and very loud and um, very exigent, you know, chefs in France and Spain. Um, and I vowed to never have to, like, be that kind of person. I very much value those experiences I went through. People liken it to, say, like, being in the military. But that doesn't mean that, you know, I aspire to be a drill sergeant by any means. Um, and I think there's a way to lead that's very open and honest and you know, to feel more like, yeah, okay, you're a teacher and a mentor sometimes, but it's important to realize that you're also, you know, continuously a student. And I think that if you present that to, um, you know, your team members, I also don't like to use the word staff. (laughs) For me, I always think like staff infection, but I also think that um, using some, you know, using team or family has this connotation that, um, you know, it's, uh, it's not hierarchical. It's not, you know, um, it's not like, oh, I walk in, like I'm the boss lady. Of course, people get intimidated that I am the boss lady. I'll always be the boss lady. I hope they don't call me that when I'm away. But, you know, I want people to feel, um, you know, comfortable opening up just as I would open up to them, say about any mistakes that I have made. And I have, I've like written up, you know, written up email apologies or, you know, have just said to them, Hey, you know, like I called that shot. I was wrong. And this is how we're going to fix it. We're going to fix it together. And that happens every day. I'll uh, close out with this final question. Uh, As you look forward to your next couple of years, hopefully many, many years at your restaurant, uh, what's something that you feel like you're doing well right now? And what's something that you feel like you've come up short and that you're looking to achieve in years two, three, four, five, and and onward with the restaurant? Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's 
very much could be the same answer for both questions. Um, so we're six months and a few days into since opening on January 3rd. Um, I think that one of, you know, the best parts and worst parts, one of the, you know, biggest challenges and one of the easiest things, like, is the people. And that's the people that walk through the door um, that are our guests or that's the people that come to work with us every day. Um, and I think that learning to find balance and find ways to empower and enable um, is always going to be a challenge. And with some folks, it's going to be easier and other folks can be tougher. I think that's where, you know, I always say that I love to learn new languages and opening a restaurant is like, you know, I love to learn in general, but opening a restaurant is like exponential growth in learning, like really fast learning all the time. Um, and I think, you know, looking down the road, it's something it's like you have to speak different dialects. Everyone's got a different style. Everyone has a different way. Um, and as a leader, speaking different dialects is very important. And so I think that will be something that I continue to excel at in certain circumstances and also be challenged with every day. Let everybody that's listening know where they can find you and the restaurant. All right. Come to Cambridge, Massachusetts. We're between Central Square and MIT uh, at 310 Mass Ave. That's Pagu Restaurant. You can find the crazy pug lady and all her, all her Pagus there. Tracy, thanks for joining us. Everyone, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week, Tuesdays at 11 a.m. for a new episode of The Line here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.